Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the parenting podcast now as you can see it's just me just me on my own today um because i wanted to firstly acknowledge everybody that has been kind enough to share their story with me um i'm so honored that you know you guys trust me enough um to to spend your time with me and to help you kind of express your your experiences um i'm very humbled by that and so as a acknowledgement and as a um way of saying that i hear you and i see you i thought that i would make myself vulnerable um today in the same way there have been bits and pieces of my experiences or my story uh, that I've dotted throughout the last six episodes. And I guess I just wanted to elaborate on those because I don't want people thinking that I'm asking anyone to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. Um, I didn't want it to be about me. Um, I guess it stems from a post that I put out for recognition of national stillbirth awareness um and i reached out and said to people you know it's incredibly difficult it can get easier it does get easier um from my experience i can tell you that um you know it's a process it's a long process you can get to live with it was you know i'm paraphrasing but that was the gist of it um and i had someone connect with me who that really triggered um and she was very upset with how i'd worded that the fact that i'd said i had had stillbirth um she said that i was wrong i had had a baby that was stillborn um and that it doesn't get easier you don't get over it what am I talking about um and that I shouldn't be telling people that they can they can get over it and live with it um and I was very careful not to say you can get over it because I don't believe you can what I mean is you can get 
over that initial grief and learn to live with grief. And I think when we lose anyone in life, no matter how close or, you know, um, if they're in your sphere and they've had an impact on you, grief is a really difficult emotion to to process and to understand and to try and live with I don't think you can ever get away from it or get over it um I think you have to learn how to function with that loss so my thinking about producing the podcast from my perspective today is not as an apology um I I feel awful that obviously I've triggered something in this woman that's really upset her I understand it I understand it wholeheartedly and everybody is entitled to their own perspective their different opinion the whole point of this podcast isn't just to point it out to parents that's the overall guys um you know, a couple of people have said it's it's difficult to kind of connect with because maybe they're not parents, they haven't had that experience. The overall reason, and I try and say it as much as possible, is to get people to realise that whatever we're doing, we're all in it together. We're all feeling the same feelings. We're all experiencing similar emotions. We're all living similar lives. So we have to be kind to each other and kind to ourselves. That's that's the overall gist of the the reason for the podcast, and yeah, to give parents specifically um, and kids, you know, um, an outlet to say that we don't need to judge each other. So, in the same way that I'm not apologising to this particular lady for my perspective. I am trying to make amends for any hurt that she has suffered as a consequence of what she felt I'm trying to project, if that makes sense. I think I'm digging a hole bigger. But there you go. So with that, um, as always, I've got my coffee. Today I have tissues because you never know what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to tell you, oh lovely listener, um, my experience of having had a stillbirth, a stillborn child, uh, having had a very sickly early child, and what that brings up for me. So here we go. <laughs> this is a, an odd one to do on my own and an odd choice, but we'll go with it. So I found out that I was pregnant for the very first time um, ever <clears throat> while I was on a camping holiday with my who ended up being husband um, with my boyfriend at the time and his three children and his parents and his brother um, and his niece, nephew. 
the kids were all about what nine around that kind of age seven to kind of ten ish something like that there was no female my age there was no one to talk to about it um I literally peed on a stick in the middle of my two stepdaughters uh obviously they couldn't see I was in the stall um and literally just wanted to cry my eyes out had absolutely no idea what I was gonna do did not know how um my partner who is Joel's dad um how he would take it um but I kind of thought he'd be okay because you know he had three children by his previous partner so I kind of thought that would be okay um I was wrong (laughs) Um, he was mortified, like didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to engage in it, was really just shut down. And I, I now know obviously that's shock and that's all of that kind of stuff. So it took us quite a long time to get to grips with that. However, um, as is the case with my body, it seems, I don't know that I'm pregnant until I'm about three or four months gone by which time the choice personally has been taken out of my hands um so there wasn't really much I could do I don't think I would have had an abortion um I certainly considered if that was possible but I really felt at the time like if you can't love our child together then I don't know how I can love your children as part of my life as part of our lives so yeah so we we decided to go ahead and unfortunately not long after we decided and got excited about it and um told people we found out that the baby wasn't growing the way that it should um and at the time, we didn't know if it was male or female, didn't know the, the sex of the baby, didn't want to know. Um, I obviously now know that um, she was she was a girl. Um, but she had what they call IUGR, which is interuterine growth restriction. And it basically just, on a very basic level, means that the, the limbs... Um, stop growing at a certain point and then the, the the body doesn't really grow that well and obviously consequently the brain and then you know nothing really gets to where it should should be um with intervention this can be fine you know that's what we have um neonatal neonatal wards for um but the way that our experience was handled was was negligent um is all I can really um give you on on that um we were told by my consultants plod on plod on that was his favorite phrase plod on you'll be fine plod on plod on um and I kept saying to him how how long do I plod on when when do I know what, what we have to make a decision here like you know we've been sent to go and look around NICU at one point 
quite late on. Um, and we'd been introduced to, you know, parents with a baby who'd had the same thing, who was growing well, who was, you know, very tiny, um, but successfully on the outside doing incredibly well because that is the marvel of our, our medicine, right? Which obviously I now know works. But no, plod on, plod on. And then one weekend, I think we've been doing this going in and out every single day for about three or four weeks, um, having different scans and consultancies and all this kind of stuff. Um, and with my, you know, now ex-husband being self-employed, that was very difficult as well financially. Sometimes I'd have to go on my own. Um, I said to, to the consultant, you know, look, you know, where are we at? What's going to happen now? What what do we do? How long do I just plod on for? I'm, I'm sick of this shit. Like, I'm scared. I need you to tell me more than just plod on. And so the Friday afternoon, he said to me, oh, well, baby may die over the weekend, but you'll know. And I said, pardon? And he said, well, you'll know. And I said, how? How 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 the fuck will I know? What what do you mean? And he said, Oh, you'll just stop feeling it move. And I think we just looked at each other and went, What? Like so now I just have to go home and wait. And what kicks me more is that I didn't at that point tell him to do more and I should have but oh going but in hindsight having worked through this for will be 16 years in January I did not know any better and I had to really release myself from that I didn't know any better at the time I trusted that at 24 years old the doctor knew what was right for me he knew being an obs and gynae consultant that inside was the best thing for baby and and that's what should happen so we went home in this daze and I remember we, it was weird, we walked around Rose Crescent in Cam- in Cambridge, if anybody knows, stood in the doorway of McDonald's, we didn't even go in, we just stood in the doorway a bit like, what should we do now? We'll just go home a bit, I guess. I ended up in, I think, Tesco's, and some incredible nurses called me and said, we can't believe that he sent you home. We're absolutely dumbfounded, we're flabbergasted. I said, yeah, but he said that the MFAU, the um, Maternal Fetal um, Assessment Unit, was shut on a weekend. She said, it's ridiculous. We're, we're going to open it. Of course we're going to open it for you. Come in. What? Come in tomorrow. First thing. What happens if, if anything happens overnight? Call an ambulance. You come in first thing tomorrow and we'll sit with you all day. We'll sit with you all weekend if we have to until, you know, he can see you again on Monday. And I just thought what incredible people incredible nurses you are you know and they were and my sister came down from Wales and my mum and sister sat with me because 
I made sure that, you know, my my boyfriend had his children as per was the regular, you know, on a Saturday, don't rock the boat for them, keep everything normal for them, don't let them worry. You know, I'll be right. Got my mum, got my sister. So they did. And they spent, I mean, hours, all of us, just trying to hold this, you know, tiny little sensor onto my tiny little bump, um, trying to follow around all day. And yeah, the comedy of er errors that kind of appear thereafter, speaking to the, this is stuff I haven't thought about for a long time, actually. Um, or, you know, pediatric consultant will come and see you. Sweet. She came and saw me. She said, we think we'll deliver baby this afternoon. Okay, sweet. Um, go and have some food. Get your mum to go home, get your, you know, bag of stuff that you'll need. Um, you know, you could be here for a little while. Excellent. Come back up. Now, I can almost hear you, if you've had this experience of a section, I can always hear you out there screaming, you're not allowed to eat if they're going to give you a section. I now know this too. So the almost dismissal of just, it feels like, it felt like, you know, stop making a fuss, just fuck off for a bit. So yeah, so we came back having had some food and made a list and was like oh okay it's exciting but scary but you know it's time to get in there now sleeves up let's get rescuing this kid let's let's go whatever's about to happen I'm ready and then we got back and there was no movement there was no um there was no little scan. So it was like, oh, we better, need, better get you to up to delivery and use a proper Doppler scan, you know, a proper ultrasound to try and figure out where she is. And then we can put the, put the scanner, the sensor onto a heartbeat. And yeah, my mum had called, called the other half and uh, he literally just got there. And at this point, I want to say that the midwives are incredible. Like, I can't like I couldn't have faulted these girls. They were with me the whole process, the whole day. Um, and Joe Bailey and Catherine Winter, poor Catherine. I think it was their first day or her first week. Like, poor cow. <laughs> she, you know, had to face that for the first time. That's horrific. But they were so good. Um. And yeah, literally the doc doctor just scanned me and said, um, literally just run in. Like, I mean, it was like seconds. Mum was almost there for that, you know. And he said, yeah, he sat down and the doctor scanned me and he just went, yeah, there is no heartbeat. Your baby's dead. And I don't know what to say next about that. Because... I understand that physicians, consultants, doctors, whatever you want to call them, have training and they have to give this kind of um, news a lot in their life. But to be the person receiving that 
in that direct manner. I mean, it literally tore me apart. Um, and we were very lucky to have um, Barbara Haynes, who she was amazing. Um, she was just coming up to her retirement as it goes. I think she was only a few weeks away. So she was super experienced and she was just there the whole time. And, I, you know, I, I can't thank the girls enough. Um, but after that, it's very much like, right, what's next? You know, you, the, the next questions are, well, you know, you can go home now if you want, but you have to come back and have your baby tomorrow. Or you can stay here and we can start the process now. And it's like, what's going to be given to be given the opportunity to go home? I definitely said I will never come back. And like, if you let me go, I'm not coming back. <clears throat> and they said, well, you have to come back. Because obviously, you know, you can't can't keep it inside. And I was like, then it will kill me. We'll both go. I'm good. I'm absolutely. I can't. Sorry. So. Oh no, I've got rusty tissues. Sorry, Pete. So I stayed. And they uh, give you a lovely suppository. Because <laughs> you have to go into natural birth. They won't give you a section, which obviously I asked for. They won't give you a section for, um, for a stillborn. So I stayed. And nothing happened for the first 12, well, I say nothing happened. What happened was my bowels evacuated themselves to the point where I think, you know, my ex was uncontrolled. Like, I think he nearly wet himself. Like, he just, it was just like, you can't stop shitting. Oh, my God. Yeah, hilarious. This is like the worst thing that's happening to me in my life. And you're worried about how funny my poo is. <laughs> um. But yeah, it was his oldest brother's 40th birthday, I think, at the time. And like that weekend, that Saturday, so people came to see us. And it was just like, oh, and they were like, oh, you can go out walking if you want. You know, you can go to the concourse or you can go and have a walk. I was like, you shitting me? I'm not leaving this bed. Like, what happens if something starts? And thank fuck I didn't, can I just say, because when it did kick off, it was in seconds and it was from like naught to 100 in like two seconds so there's no I would have been doing that in the middle of the hospital so no don't advise anybody to ever you know go out walking I can't I can't imagine why you would do that it, you know the, the medication they give you isn't a slow starting thing it's to to make you go into in, you know into labor as quickly as possible and then they knew that that my placenta was the the thing that had sort of broken down um and so when it got stuck and I remember saying to the nurse she said do you want to know 
what you've had do you you know do we have to have a discussion do you want to hold in do you want to you know spend time straight away do you want to spend time with them later do you not want to spend time do you want to name them do you want to not name them do you want to have them wrapped in a particular color blanket have you got something you know all of this kind of stuff funeral arrangements all this kind of stuff that you have to you know forms that you have to fill in there you know do you give authorization for um research for them to use parts of of your child to to be involved in research he was in a puddle in the corner he could do any of that you know blessing what i'd taken three beautiful experiences of you know lovely full-term birth for him and given him this experience he's bereft so obviously i'm the person that's you know i'll just make the decisions and we'll just roll with it and and when it happened i didn't i didn't want to hold i wanted everything to be done and then have some time and it's only now in hindsight i remember seeing her being wrapped in a pink blanket um but they knew that my placenta was was fucked so the doctor that came in and decided to give it a pull to get it out which obviously just detached itself meant that then I had to go down to surgery and I remember as they're like taking me down and they hold your throat don't they so that you don't throw up I remember thinking if this is the last thing that I ever seen Take me. I don't care. I really don't care. So then I had to recover from all of that. And then after the recovery, then we decided to, to see her, which was just bittersweet, horrific, harrowing. And, and she looked just like she did on this board. And then the worst part of all of that was that I had to leave her and I had to let her go. And I had to go home without her. And when I got home, my lovely sister was there. But my house was like a florist. <laughs> there was no balloons. It was not a, a happy occasion. There was no congratulations. It was just horrible and empty. And you can't, you can't turn back. You feel like a different person and you are a different person. And things don't, they don't go back. Sadly. And you know, it's taboo to talk about having lost a child because it makes other people uncomfortable. And, you know, your whole identity is in limbo. You're not who you were. And you're not a mum to the outside world because you've got nothing to mother. You've got nothing to parent. But you absolutely are a mum. But you feel like a fraud. And with every year that passes, the hole in my heart just gets bigger. 
because it's even further away from the time when I've had to be nearer. So I know it doesn't get easier. And I see all my friends who are obviously thrilled about, you know, having their kids who are the same age. And my cousin was pregnant at the same time as me. And, you know, I adore her daughter, I do. Um, and that was also very hard, but we all dealt with that as best we could. And, you know, I see these kids who are just incredible when they're in year 11. And I think, shit, you know, she would have been 16 coming up. How would I have had a 16-year-old and a nearly 13-year-old? And the thing is, Anna's, my daughter is called Anna. Anna's birthday is the 22nd of January, 2007. Joel's birthday is the 19th of January, 2010. So everything that happened with him is exactly parallel to what happened with her. Man, we should have had better planning. We should have had planning. What's the point? <laughs> we should have had better planning because every year, Christmas and January is like the same bittersweet. It's almost like I've got given Joel to have another chance at it, you know? And he knows all about what happened. And he knows, you know, that she's there looking after us and that she's being looked after. And um, on the other side, whatever you believe, that's my belief. And just because I might seem, you know, day to day like it doesn't bother me. And I've done a lot of work to sp spiritually release it, to physically let it go, because my identity became for so many years one of grief. My identity was grieving for Anna, for grandparents, for aunts and uncles, for friends and boyfriends, you know, thing, things and people that have have left the physical world. That grief turned into huge trauma, each individual one, but the, the amount of PTSD that I suffered after Joel as a consequence of burying these things and just trying to get on I've had to let that go and I've worked hard to let that go not to forget not to not feel but to 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 release Anna from from being stuck here and to allow me to get over that guilt of not providing um, a child, of my body letting me down, of, you know, hurting the children, that they didn't have a, a sister, that they... They'd had a sister from their mum's relationship. They knew what it was like. I brought that into their their lives. Our chemistry, mine and his, meant that, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and if, unfortunately for them, it was the, the same the same time frames as well, you know. Anna was 27 and, and 6, so almost 28 weeks. Jay was the same. You know, there are too many similarities to not acknowledge 
that these things have happened for a reason. And it's been my choice to talk about these things and my choice to to let that part of me go because I'm forgetting about the love and being smothered with the grief. And that's not how you, you can't live a, a successful life like that from grief. You can't. You're living from lack. You're living from loss. You know, I stayed at home for seven months after I lost Anna. Massive, complete recluse. So much anxiety. Couldn't go out. Couldn't, couldn't function. I couldn't do anything. I didn't want to. I just wanted to die. And I... I didn't, I didn't know what life was for. If that was what life was for, I didn't want it. And I had incredible people that rallied around me even when I didn't want them. <laughs> but there were people that I encountered that I still feel, feel guilty for. You know, the weekend that we came home was um, my ex's uh, dad's 65th birthday party at our local pub where I'd worked for years run by my friends our friends and I remember this really lovely guy and I said I said to the family I don't want to go I just and I got told come on it'll be good for you you'll be fine you know I should have stayed at home I should have done what I wanted to do and just said send my regards but I went because you get told you have to do these things and you people please so that's another reason that we're here right um but this lovely guy, bless him, just came up to me and went, cool, you're looking big. And I just, I felt so bad for him. I wanted to just, I wanted to say to him, oh my God, you don't know. But obviously he didn't know, so it wasn't his fault. And do you know what? I kind of went, because <laughs> I was obviously going to burst into tears at the time, and went to the toilet and Somebody obviously told him, and when I came back from the loo, he'd gone, and I never saw him again. He never came into the pub. He was a good guy, and I've always felt so guilty that I never said to him, you didn't know, it wasn't your fault, like, I'm not offended. How could you have known? You didn't do that to be shit. Like, you just didn't know, and that's okay. You know, <clears throat> one of the, the family one of the girls that you know like the the girlfriends as it were that we saw was really close to she lover couldn't even lift her head up to talk to me she sat at the bar and I remember thinking I can't just ignore her why like I love her why like she obviously doesn't know what to say so I don't you know I'm gonna have to initiate this and so I just went over to her and said hello and she just looked up and went Steph I don't know what to say to you I said, you know what? That's the best thing you could have said to me. I said, like, can we just be normal now? She just went, yeah. I was like, right, let's get the drinks in. Fuck it. You know, end of. And sometimes maybe you're here because, you know, you're listening because somebody you know is going through this. Maybe you're going through this. Maybe, you know, you're trying to support someone. Maybe you've been through this. 
sometimes the best thing to say to someone is I don't know what to say because you acknowledge that there's something but also that you're not really adept at communicating what you're feeling at that time and actually that's enough I personally would prefer that than be ignored or prefer that than have somebody speak to me and not even acknowledge it the onus shouldn't be on the person that is suffering to to initiate those kind of conversations we shouldn't have to come up to you and be like hi something's happening acknowledge me that's like we're going through enough it's your job as the people around the supporting people to at least just go look I don't know what to say to you and I'm sorry but shit you don't even need to ask if they're okay just just acknowledge that they're there and that shit's going on for them that is support enough because you know what nine times out of ten we don't want to talk about it either you know especially in that kind of environment like it's meant to be a birthday party I don't really want everyone to be going oh why was you you know tell us I don't fucking want to be there so if I can give you anything just acknowledge them just acknowledge their existence if nothing else make them a cup of tea buy them a drink you know like drop around a dinner post sandwiches through their door you know like I don't mean randomly I mean like you know nicely like a friend did with me I'm sitting here until you're done I love you you know I want to have lunch with you you won't come out okay you know that's the kind of shit people need that's the kind of support that come around and watch crap tv with them you know just everybody's experience is different take the lead from that person but ask them what what it is they need from you that's often the best the best advice i think i could i could give so it's been a long time and you know there's there's been so many things that that go with that 2018 sticks in my head 2017 2018 there was a documentary made in our Obs and Gynae unit authorized by my consultant who I'm sure I'll continue to tell you about when we move on to the Joel section in a moment. He authorised this with supposedly the authority of the, the Primary Care Trust. And when, as it transpires, the consultants told these parents this news, and bear in mind how I was told my news, they had hidden cameras in these consulting rooms, audio and visual cameras. They wanted to, and I quote, so, so, so cross, I could cry. They wanted to catch the primal scream of losing a child. That was the, the fundamental desire of making this documentary to 
find out how people really genuinely felt when they told that news and what happens thereafter. And I believe three or four couples took part. Apparently, there were notifications. And I mean, like an A4 sheet, there may be recording equipment in these rooms. That was literally what was put around. And there were just a couple, I think three, no more than that, in the waiting room that I'd seen. Um, Because I'd been there with a friend um, supporting her through a similar thing with her twins around that time. And I am disgusted to my core that seeing these people every day going through this, that the care trust thought that that was okay to do. The fact that it was authorised by him doesn't surprise me and when I wrote to the director of the hospital and to the care trust and voiced my concern for how harrowing a trauma this will be for people to witness they didn't really have any comeback oh well there was there was posters around you know, people consented to this. They consented after they'd had their most horrific, earth-shattering news already recorded. That's not consent at all. It's not informed consent, that's for fucking sure. And I cannot tell you how... I mean, like, words fail me. I can't tell you how sickened I was that this was then plastered on, you know, Channel 4, on adverts, on, you know, all over the show. Like, it was just, oh, it's just a fly in the wall documentary. Oh, it's just, you know, real-life TV. It's just, you know, it doesn't matter. I challenge any one of you that has gone through that to be okay with putting that stuff out there and having it recorded without your knowledge. Had they said ahead of time, had they said before the recording was was discovered or divulged to them, do they think that somebody would have faked that response? Can you fake the response to being told your baby has died inside you? That you're then going to have to give physical birth to it? I'm so cross now I'm gonna cry again (laughs) like I just people like that are just not just not okay and I have the utmost respect for the people that could be on the documentary but I feel for them I feel for them um because that's not just telling somebody your experience this far down the line. That's having people physically watch it and edit it and cut it and trawl through 
the most horrific thing you'll have to go through. And it's wrong. So that's that. <laughs> On the flip side, I then got my J-Man. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I got a bit sick of people, one person in particular, saying, oh, you know what you need? You need to have another baby. Oh, you know what you need? You need to have another baby. No, 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 I don't need to have another baby. What I need is the baby that I should have had, is the baby that I carried, the baby that I gave birth to. I don't have that. So I don't need to go through that again. Thanks all the same. Children were never in my life path. They were never in my plan. Being with someone was never in my plan. So look, here we are hitting goals already. But I never planned to have kids as was accidental, as was proven. So when I found out that I was pregnant again, the ex was surprisingly overjoyed this time. I, on the other hand, was petrified and adamant I wasn't going ahead. <laughs> How the times changed. Yeah, I remember him finding out. And I mean, I was so sure I wasn't pregnant. I went to Poundland and I bought like five five pounds worth of because we were so broke five pounds worth of like dipstick ones um and I went to my mum's and found some plastic cups and peed in some plastic cups um and did like three three of those I think and they were all positive and I was like dodgy batch I'll I'll go home and then looked at the batch labels and oh these ones are different batch did another one fuck it's positive when he came home did another one I was like oh no I'm gonna have to tell him this is horrific and he was thrilled. Let's open the champagne, as I recall, he said. Uh, first of all, I'm pregnant, so no. Um, and secondly, I'm not having another baby, so no. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm going off travelling, my friend. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. So here we are, only 13 years later. Um, but again, we had the same, the same thing. Um we man again didn't know if it was a girl or a boy for a while i found out again i was about three or four months pregnant um and i think we did end up finding out if it was a girl or a boy because when i lost anna it felt like a double hit to me it felt like only knowing afterwards that she was a girl felt like I'd lost a baby and a daughter that might sound crazy to people but that's how it felt so I kind of felt like if I knew maybe if this one didn't work out it wouldn't feel like such a double hit I don't know the mindset does crazy things when we're trying to justify these traumas um so we knew it was going to be we man <clears throat> and um I remember going into the first consultancy and sitting with that bastard. And I said, I don't want you to be my consultant to his face. <laughs> and he went, 
well I am and I went then I'm not going to see you till the end of the pregnancy there better be somebody else because let me tell you how I feel about you right now we're not getting on and he was like okay better find somebody else fuck off hot foot it mate not having it uh and I think I I stayed in I think it's about I don't know halfway through I wasn't pregnant for long um I found that the movements were reducing so obviously I went to A&E because that's what you do that's sensible went to to the maternity hospital and the on-call doctor was incredible and he said considering your history I don't know how they're allowing you to stay at home and I went what and he went you're not going home tonight he said you're not going home till the baby's born I was like what no uh yes he said we're gonna <laughs> love him we're gonna monitor you 24 7 until that child is born so say goodbye to your husband <laughs> we're right about that point say goodbye to your husband send him home to get some clothes um he needs to come back with a suitcase for you for a good few weeks what yeah total bed rest ah you know like oh what yesterday i was at work and then today i what? like i didn't go back awful my car died on New Year's Day. Um, so my dad love him. Like, he was like, we'll sort that out, we'll sort that out. So that was just a nightmare. So, yeah, trying to give us lifts and stuff to get to him from the hospital. And so I stayed in. And thankfully, I did stay in um, for the good two, just over two weeks prior. Um, because I got incredible physicians, Professor Green and Mr. Lee's. I could not be more grateful for them. I had a Doppler scan, it's like a blood flow scan on the Monday. And at the other end of the week on the Friday had growth scans. So they were doing this constantly, all monitored all days. So they knew if there was any change that, you know, they could be on hand. Um, and it was tough. I went home over one weekend. Well, for a few hours, I was allowed to go home, but I had to come back to go to sleep there, which I understood. But at the time I was like, I don't want to you know trying to fight it I'll be fine no like no you can't be cross about not being monitored previously and then dismiss the monitoring like crazy crazy talk what was I doing 27 points out together um but yeah like it was it was long and it did feel like forever but oh my god I was so so lucky to have been there and I remember on the Tuesday saying like trying to call my my husband going like you need to he didn't never picked up my standards you need to be i need you something's changed something's changed called my mom i was like mom like he's not picking up i need to i need like nurses aren't listening to me i know something's changed i just i fucking know it like people think i'm crazy and that i'm you know overreacting but i'm not like something's changed she was like right i'll be there i think she did like something like a 45 minute journey in like 20 minutes or something but she was there as always and I'd said to the nurses like I need to see I need to see Miss Lee's it's happening like I it's something's not right and just to shut me up get me a scan like I don't care if everything's fine I'll leave you alone but trust me it's not and he went went in at five o'clock come in at the end of the shift we don't need to give you any more scans because we're doing Monday and Friday nothing changes in the middle of that my ass and yeah five o'clock scanned me scanned me he went oh 
do you want a 3D scan? So it's only have to tap this button, which we normally, you know, we don't do that. Like, you usually have to pay for these kind of things, but do you want a 3D scan of his face? Yeah, I do. He's got this little, oh, it looks like my cousin Tom. So cute. Um, sorry, I just named you Tom, but he does, you know. Um, so we've got some 3D pictures, which is just incredible, because we said, don't have any more. Um, and he said, yeah, you're right. Something has changed. And we're going to go into section now. Pardon? Yeah, we're going to take you to theatre right now. You should call your husband. It's like, fuck. Like, had no idea. Again, you haven't eaten for hours, have you? No, you haven't. That's right. Because you can't have a section when you've eaten recently, can you? No, you cannot because of the anaesthetic. Hmm. Yes, 2007 doctors, what were we talking about? Um. So, yes. So, again, the uh, husband got told that he had to be there an hour and a half before he really did. And he, as usual, scraped in in the last five minutes, just enough time to get scrubs on. Mum was all ready to get in there as well. Um, and we ended up having a baby. And it was the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my life. And if you've ever had either a planned or an emergency section, um, it's very calm, eerily calm. There were six people for me I think and I believe eight or ten because I remember them saying it they were oh they shouldn't have had that many people in there but they did so there was a lot of people in there but everybody's just going about their business and there was Robbie Williams playing don't remember what it was but I know there was Robbie Williams on the radio and at 10 14 at night the boy was born and I remember the doctor saying um happy birthday welcome to the world that's very cute but there's no crying i don't even know if he was alive so you, you can hear them doing work on them and then they stitch you up for ages and i remember my husband looking like there's a partition so you're laying down but like the partition is like in front of your face here and i remember my husband going Ugh, i can see inside you i was like ew i'm not comfortable with you seeing inside me get back over here what the romance is dead I think it was all downhill from there um <laughs> but that was weird and creepy um and then yeah they said that I had to stay in the hospital for 12 hours and I knew that we had a really long road ahead of us um so they took Jay through to NICU to neonatal intensive care unit is NICU and I see you and they a while after wheeled me through on a bed to see him I couldn't see him all I could see were big blankets so I didn't see him his first day of his life couldn't see him physically and then they discharged me at 11 o'clock the next night into the snow which my parents were furious about um which is ironic because it snowed on the day of Anna's funeral and it snowed on the day that Joel was born, which I think is just beautifully poetic. But there it is. That time of year, isn't it? You can put it down to whatever you want. I'm going with poetic. Um, <laughs> leave me. It makes me happy. Um, yeah, so I went home and the long road of NICU was ahead. And, oh, my God, what water road. And again, my incredible sister just took two weeks holiday, 
three weeks, whatever she did, just like she did before. No, work's not as important. I'm coming down to hang with you. She couldn't even come into the ward. She would wheel me up there every day, bless her. <laughs> Almost tip me out of the wheelchair, watch me stagger with my section, you know, awful, so much pain. Um, up to the extra doors and just sit there all day, bless her, and wait for me just so she could take me home again. God love her. Never more grateful to my sister for being in times of need. Um, and it was a bloody hard road. We were incredibly lucky that Joel, as they say, just experienced um, all the things that Prem babies experience. Uh, a couple of lesions on the brain, um, premature lungs, um, some growth stuff, you know, but he hasn't had, apart from until recently, his seizures, he hasn't had anything more serious. And I could not be more grateful for that. We know how lucky we are when it comes to that. I'll be talking to my friend Zoe a couple of uh, podcast time, who I met in NICU with her daughter Poppy. And Zoe was an absolute lifesaver in many ways for me. Um, she will tell you more about her experience, but I wanted to have a heads up on our experience of her being here. So I really struggled to have any milk come in and you have to express your milk so that you can feed your baby your own milk and unfortunately I beat myself up over that for a very long time it just wouldn't come in it was painful there was nothing like there was nothing I could do and I felt not only like a failure but I felt like I was letting my child down I felt like a shit mum I didn't know what to do in the end um one of the nurses I mean this was after a few weeks said to me oh have you spoken to our breastfeeding midwife and I was like I didn't even know there was such a thing as a breastfeeding midwife why isn't this mentioned to you as soon as you come up here um I was like no she said oh I'll get her to come around and have a look you know have a talk to you I was like oh wicked thanks so the next day this woman appears you know in her nice uniform and she's like oh I've heard of your notes tell me what's happening does explain and she went, oh, yeah, so the reason the milk's not coming in and you're struggling um, is because what's happened to you previously, your body thinks that your baby is dead, so it's dried up your milk. So your body doesn't think that you need to produce milk. So there's me beating myself up, thinking I'm a really shit mum, when actually what's happening is completely natural. So Zoe had... I hope she won't mind me saying um, an influx of milk. Um, and so there was a time when it was suggested to me by the nursing staff that perhaps we use surrogate milk to to feed Joel. And realistically, that hurt <laughs> because that just compounded uh, my feelings of failure and guilt and um being unable to provide and be the mother that 
my body should be able to be um and I thought about it and obviously decided that yes the sensible thing would be for for that to happen however I only wanted it to be from somebody that I knew who I knew and had got to know um and trusted and so Zoe's milk was used for Jay hope that doesn't creep him out too much (laughs) um for a little while and I'm eternally grateful that that was that that was an option for us um because it took the pressure off me and it meant that you know Zoe's wasn't going to waste and I knew it was all prepared the way it should be um and it meant that I I could give myself a break um and we were made to experience trying to get our babies to latch on which was horrific and traumatic for all involved um and we weren't successful with that because it absolutely exhausted them for days afterwards, the twice that we tried. Um, and that wasn't fair. That wasn't fair on him. And as it turned out, he wasn't putting on enough weight anyway. So he had to have um, kind of special calorific medical milk that would help him to um, put the calories on and keep them because he was using so much energy just trying to breathe. So all of that stuff was kind of trialed and pointless anyway and obviously with my broken car and being unable to to drive myself because of my section as I said my dad was dropping me off um at like eight in the morning and my husband wasn't picking me up until maybe half eight at night when he came off to work and so I was there until we he'd seen him and we'd left um, until nine every day so for what ended up being six months to do 8 a.m to 9 p.m every day including weekends took a toll on my body <laughs> and um, I took a long time to heal I got very poorly they thought that you know some of the placenta had been left in Um I had very very hard time healing we were standing just over incubators all day there weren't any seats or there was one seat per six cribs in each room um it was horrific uh to try and to try and heal and the very fact that you have literally got your your heart on the outside of your body your child in this incubator that you're powerless to save that you know you you can't do anything you have to watch for so long I couldn't it was the size of my hand literally um which I'm like size four shoe in UK um and that's about the size of my hand he had no eyelashes no eyebrows no fingernails um he was completely see-through he looked just like a a baby sparrow and I couldn't touch him for the first few days. Um, it was three weeks 
before I got to actually physically hold him. Um, you know, you could just about put your hand in the incubator, the, the nappies, you must see them on some of the adverts, are like tiny, tiny. Um, it's a lot. One of the cardio consultants said to me um, early on, you know, you are the advocate for your child and you, of course, have to make sure that they get what they need and you have to speak up for them. He wished he'd never told me that. <laughs> and he said that to me many times since because I wanted to be there for everything, everything. And I was. There was nothing. I say nothing. There were no procedures that I missed because I was there all the time. I was lucky enough to be there all the time. And so I made sure that if any questions were ever asked in the future from Jay, that I would be able to say, oh, yeah, I, I watched that. This happened. I know how it worked. I know why it happened. Um, and I, I did that for him. I did that to make sure that his none of this would be a section that is just a mystery to him um they're amazing they you know the nurses wrote diaries and took pictures and wrote you know um entries from them to the kids kids were allowed to come in eventually um but it's it's a long it's a long road and you do every day when you leave you you wonder if you're going back to your child or not so that reliving that trauma of loss is daily and in the beginning it's it's minute to minute hour to hour let alone day to day um and you know when partners go off to work for weeks on end you do that on your own when you're a single parent you do that on your own when you know you live far away you can't get there every day you know there are people that just you know you never saw there because they just you know they can't the child needs the care of the the, the trust but they don't live close it's it's so sad it's like it's so horrendous to have to to go through and I know how how lucky we are I know how lucky we were to live so close and yes they were long days and you know yes it was hard but we we got our boy you know we have friends that we were in rooms with for, for you know a big chunk of time and they didn't get their children you know I I watched another baby struggle and alerted the nurses and you know he literally in in the crib in front of me he he died um a child that you know we'd been in there with I think he was even in there before we were he didn't make it out you know friends of ours who had twins who came out with one twin and the other twin didn't make it out you know the the shit that these people have to witness every day I mean there's some kind of superhumans to deal with that because as a parent the emotional turmoil the the physical and mental impact that has on you is immeasurable 
and you become very insular you're very stuck in a bubble you're very institutionalized you're very used to this little bubble and you know for us using Zoe as an example because I, I know she's coming on um watching Poppy you know be the first one to come off um oxygen for example or you know be able to take a proper feed or move into scaboos that special care baby unit scbu you know those kind of milestones when you're effectively left behind they have an impact because you have this double-edged sword of being thrilled for other people that you know they're finally getting their time with their, their child and getting to live you know some kind of normalcy and you're not and you wonder about how your child will turn out and you wonder if the medications they're giving them to you know get them off these these breathing machines these CPAPs we tried a few times um and the decision was made to give Joel these medications which I researched and absolutely stomped my feet and we had a big old row about it because I was adamant it's not going to happen you know the potential damages to you know for brain damage and for growth and all that kind of stuff I didn't want to be responsible for that if it ever happened but the consequence of not I don't even know what the consequence of that would have been you know he his lungs weren't strong enough so this constant battle of like weighing up pros and cons for potential futures that you have no control over it's it's just harrowing um and when for us when we finally got through to Skaboo and was in special care and I was allowed to you know do more with him that was lovely but I found myself feeling more and more stressed by that um you know I had two of my best friends uh that both had twins that were both in there and you know both kind of making their way home um and a friend from work with twins came in and I felt like at the time I was some kind of I'd convinced myself I was some kind of um bad luck charm I wouldn't and I would still be hesitant which is ridiculous I know I wouldn't ever touch a pregnant belly and I still, I I would still shy away from that because it's it's ingrained in my head. It's ridiculous, I know, but it's that kind of ingrained stuff that you have to work towards. But you know, I would never have been in a room with somebody who was pregnant for you know quite a long time. So there's progressions in these things. <laughs> But I remember one of the nurses in Skaboo saying to me, you know, Steph, you're so tightly wound. We're worried that one day you're just going to uncoil. And I kind of went, yeah, me too. Like, I just didn't know how to cope. And I think the biggest thing for me, which is why I wanted to get into counselling, was that I had an incredible counsellor after I lost Anna. We went together, I went individually, and it helped. It helped an awful lot. But we didn't 
really have that. We had like a, a really great guy who was on the ward who we kind of dropped in and saw or he'd come and see us a bit. But I didn't feel, and again, that's not anybody else's perspective. That's my personal perspective. I didn't feel I had that support throughout that time. So I had the support of the staff, don't get me wrong, but, you know, they're, they're medical staff. They're not there to to sit and have an hour's therapy every day because you probably need a few more than that every day in that kind of bubble. Um, and especially in our scenario where, you know, you there's no end in sight. You don't know when you're going. They can't tell you when you're going. Um, and at the end of Skabu, at the end of special care, the the kind of norm is that you know you've had your however many weeks um kind of leading up to your graduation and then you have your stay in this you know specific room with the windows and you get to have like a night or two nights with your baby to prepare you going home with your baby a friend of ours who I won't name <clears throat> um had had been in this situation three times with her three boys and they were all very early, but she was in with her daughter. So she, this was her fourth experience. So even though they were insistent, you know, you have to stay and have the, the graduation night. And, you know, she was like, oh, I've done this loads of times. It'll be fine. You know, she still got that. And it's still like rounded off her experience and gave her that conclusion. And, you know, we sent her away with her balloons and it was like, and I saw this progressively for my cohort time and time again and kept thinking, when is it our turn? When are we going to, when are we going to leave? When is it going to be well enough for me to take him home? And the first time we were allowed to take him out of the main room was in this... <laughs> shonky old like probably doll's pram um and my parents came they were allowed to come into a different room with him and we watched the boat race I think Cambridge Oxford boat race which is big in our family um Joel's dad's family are you know from rowing stock so they that's big for them um I made that sound fancy it's not <laughs> it's just a Cambridge thing um and so we watched the the boat race all together and then he had to go back into the main room and you know there there wasn't that freedom to kind of get used to him because he was so kind of frail and brittle I guess and then it came to the point where he was term um and with early babies they do a thing where you have like a a, a corrected age and a real age so like the day that they were meant to be born and the day that they were actually born kind of thing so you're constantly having to work out like what real actual pretend who knows what ages it's very complicated some days um but he came to real term when he was supposed to be born um in the april and he was still nowhere near near ready to go home but unfortunately that meant that the knowledge of the neonatal special care units was kind of not suitable 
for us because he was kind of a bit further on than their specialities, understandably. So then there were the discussions of, well, what do we do now? (laughs) So we ended up going downstairs to um, what they call PEDS, paediatric unit, you know, the, the children's ward. But unfortunately, their knowledge starts at kind of six months real term. So it's tricky for them to have any kind of special knowledge of what to do with him. So that was that was hard. And then not only that, I'm double-edged sword. I moaned about not being able to stay with him before. Now I had to stay with him. So on the one hand, hurrah, I got to sleep next to my child. I got to care for him 24-7. Awesome. The flip side of that is I had to live at the hospital <laughs> so I couldn't go home. <laughs> um, and when this kind of dawned on me, like, I mean, and it wasn't like you didn't get like a, you know, your special room. Like I was by the nurse's station because they would need to see him um in a ward of six other people with the curtains you know this like this is open to infection essentially because kids are coming in here because they've been brought in from mainly and they need to stay so obviously anxiety was like through the roof um and yeah I didn't sleep for days genuinely um because I like every time the first night I think they took him off his monitors as well what the fuck and so anytime he moved, I was like, <gasps> oh my God, <laughs> like absolutely shitting. My, I mean, like I was living on an knife edge. Um, God, that was so scary. And I think after a couple of days, I just said to, to my then husband, I was like, I know you have to go to work, but you have to stay. We have to do every other night. I'm, I'm not going to survive like I'm 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 a mess here I need you to to stay with me um and we were the only ones that obviously could so bless him he did you know there would be like he's coming in after work or whatever and take over tap out you know we're just gonna get some get some Burger King together or whatever and then uh, I'd go home come back in the morning so that he could take the car to go to work <laughs> just so I could get you know, arrest every other night. And we did this for a while. And again, we left. I mean, so that would have been about six weeks on its own. So we, Jay got to go home on the 24th of May, which is his dad's birthday. So I know that. Um, and so that was awesome. But incredibly scary. Um, because in, in the time between Pete and leaving, I'd been allowed to take him out some more. I was encouraged to take him outside, you know, he's on oxygen, he'll be fine. So the first time I took him out was into like a little garden, just, I mean, literally on the other side of the ward, I was bricking it. Um, And a girl who was in my sister's year at school had come in in the next bay with her baby. Um, And she was like, oh, you know, we just need some fresh air, come outside with us. And I was like, I've never been outside with him. I'm scared. She was like, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And I was like, oh, okay. So we did. We just went out and it was lush. And I probably spent probably about 10, 20 minutes out there and then went, right, that's enough inside we go. I looked like a vampire by the time we left hospital. So um, 
And so I think a few days later, um, Zoe and a few of the other girls had said, oh, we'll, we're coming in into um, upstairs, Nikki, Scabby, uh, for a, they have like a, a mum's kind of morning where you get to sort of chat to some of the nurses and stuff. It's like a charity run thing. It's lovely. You should you should bring bring Joel, you know, come and see us. And I was like, oh, yeah, all right. Okay, cool. I'm up for this. Yeah, yeah, And <laughs> I go upstairs and it like, you know, obviously because I'm within the hospital, the hospital, you know, peds are like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, go and, you know, enjoy him. Be mum. Like, it's who knows when you will leave. So, yeah, so I did. So went up. And it was lovely to see everyone. I was sitting there and I had a window opposite me. And I was thinking, God, I've never seen him look like this. Like, he's a really pale kid. So, like, there, I mean, he was, I mean, he was tiny, tiny. He was really dinky. But I was thinking, he's like, you know, in the crease of my arm here. I was thinking, he's a really pale kid. I was thinking, maybe it's just having the natural light on him. But no, he does look really pale. And then I realised that he just was really limp. And I just shit myself and I just screamed out to one of the nurses and I was like, he doesn't look right. Oh my God, like what's happening? And it turns out his oxygen had just stopped working, just fully stopped working. It had said it was full, you know, we'd had all the treat, the, the training and all of that stuff. We'd had all the resource care training, all of that stuff. So there was no, you know, negligence. It just stopped. It was one of those freak things. And luckily, which is, again, why I mentioned Zoe, uh, Poppy was having time off oxygen. So she had passed over the oxygen that Poppy could have been. Here you go, have this. Pops will be fine. You know, we can we can get down to NICU and get another one. You know, we can find out somewhere in the hospital. We'll get some oxygen. Just go. So me and the nurse legging it back through from one end of the hospital to the other like with this borrowed oxygen poor poppy <laughs> ledge that she is um with just me hoping that you know jay was was gonna be okay and then on the way through i saw my first ever boyfriend who's like still one of my best friends and he i now know was working at the at the hospital and he see me running along and his face was like <gasps> like as if to go, oh my God, there's you with the baby. And I just went, can't talk now, dying. <laughs> and his poor face was just like, huh? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry to him for that. It's really bad. But I just didn't know what else to do. I think it was like days later that I must like contact him just to go, I'm really sorry about that. But this was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> and yeah, after that, I didn't really want to go walking out with him. I was absolutely petrified of being on my own with him and we we ended up taking Joel just to sit out the front of the, the maternity hospital and I wouldn't go any further there's now a big road that kind of rings all the way around it and we walked one really hot day you know his dad made me go that far and I was like I can't be any further than like, I have to see the hospital the whole time like my my brain was fucked like I really was just so institutionalized and so afraid of being too far away where things wouldn't happen and I think sadly that has made me or you know thankfully 
has made me a better parent and prepares me for everything else that was to come. When we left the hospital for his dad's birthday, we tried to do no visitors. Obviously, people ignored us because it's his birthday. Why wouldn't you? And we tried to give it a few days. And then we obviously had to go food shopping. And I remember we went to, we only had one of with um, the three kids who had the young youngest lad, who ironically is the spit of, of Joel. The two of them are like peas in a pod uh, to look at and behaviourally and everything. He's a lovely, lovely lad. Um, and we had him. And so three or four of us, shall I say, went off to food shopping um, at well-known grocery store. And I was pushing and I said, oh, do you know, why don't you push him for a change? I'll just, you know, you wander him around. I'll just scoot around, get the bits as we do and get home. Because obviously I'm getting a bit like we've been out too long. Like we've probably been out, I've been, probably been there for about half an hour, three quarters of an hour at the most. It probably takes 20 minutes to get there. And then we've been in there like 20 minutes, like if that, do you know what I mean? But my brain is overtime here. And I'm going, he's, he's been out, there's too many people, I, you know, I need to go home. And then his dad wanders off and he comes back. And I said, have you checked on him recently? Because I'm paranoid. And he was like, he's fine, what are you worried about? And I looked and the same thing, I said, he's really pale. And he went, no, 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 it's just the lights, it's just the lights. So it's not fucking lights. And I yoked him out and the next fucking oxygen bottle had gone again. That cylinder had stopped working on our asses. And they told us not to take spares out because it would be dangerous in cars and all that kind of stuff. It's not what you're supposed to do. So we didn't. Um, because you trust what you're being told. It's not right. You should trust your intuition. I stand by that. Um, and I remember literally running out again, remembering all my research training and remembering that when it had happened with the nurses, I went, shit, you deal with it, and handed him over because I freaked. This time, there was no one to hand him over to. So I got in the zone, which is what I do now, and I go, right, what do we need to do? And no panic. I'm just very, um, you know, <laughs> very matter-of-fact. And, you know, my parents have said that quite a lot, that... They don't know how I just go into focus mode and it surprises them because they go into panic mode and I just take over these things. But I think that's prepared me. It's what I'm good at. I've had to be good at it. And I remember, like I said, just yoking him out of the, the push chair. I don't know what I was thinking. And I took him outside and they had this like, they started with these like marble just flat marble benches and there was this huge guy probably like six four 20 stone like just massive guy and I just went I need to be there he just went okay like, so just moved. I was like somebody call an ambulance like this and they were amazing they came out and they were calling an ambulance meanwhile my husband's running around the car park going is anybody a doctor is anybody a doctor because there's not a film get back here what are you doing dick <laughs> But again, panic sets in. I can't, I can't judge him for that. Panic sets in. It's fucking scary to watch your kid just, just lifeless. And you know, I I remember 
covering his mouth and nose and like gently blowing in and had some you know helpful passes by you shouldn't be doing that if you're breathing fuck off you know like don't even talk to me and again Gambo said I did exactly the right thing I should have you know I did what I had to do what I was trained to do for my child this does not work for everybody's child this is not me giving you a green light to go and just you know try out any kind of resource I'm telling you learn proper resource it will save lives you can do it you know what to do in the meantime and I'm telling you you do what is right for your child in that moment you know it, it's necessary so yeah so that's that's the first time I've saved his life eight times I've now recessed Joel in various scenarios we ended up back in hospital for a couple of weeks after that in PICU pediatric intensive care unit and then after that we came home and we ended up again in PICU after another illness so we didn't fully graduate from hospital with Joel for the mainly final time until July so yeah January he was born 19th of January and we got out in July I went into hospital at the beginning of January. <laughs> so nearly seven, six, seven good months there of uh, incredible NHS. And I couldn't be more thankful for them. I've had to save Joel's life on the side of the M40 <laughs> twice. Uh, that was two different runs on the way to Wales um when else seizures yeah seizures there's been a few seizures um you know when I check on him at 10 o'clock at night and he's fine and then I go and check on him again at half past thinking something's not right middle of the pandemic as you do after we've been there isolating for a good seven weeks I think it was took him out of school early to protect myself because I've been poorly to protect him because I didn't want him to get poorly and then moved to my parents to make sure that we were all safe and then he goes and has a, a big ass seizure in the middle of the pandemic so he had to obviously get the ambos in there to go and stay in hospital for a few days <laughs> sort of funny I laugh because it is triggering the emotions the sentiments the potential loss that it brings up every time something happens to him shakes my world and there are different things that trigger that you know um after losing Anna hearing a baby cry in a you know shop hearing about someone's pregnancy hearing about, you know, a family member being pregnant or, you know, those kind of things are that double-edged sword where you're very happy for people, but it really hurts and it's really hard to ignore that hurt. And then when it's my best buddy who... I would do anything for, like I said, it's having a kid is like having your heart run around outside yourself. 
when I heard somebody say that to me, it just all fell into place. Like I didn't know what life was meant for until I first held him in my arms on Valentine's Day. Um, I would do anything for him. So the thought of not having him, the thought of anything happening to him, it's I can't even I can't even comprehend that. And you know, since Jay has been alive and well, you know, I've had cousins that have had prem babies and that have lost babies and and that are unable to have babies and you know family members that have had successful pregnancies and lovely healthy babies and each one of those comes with their own difficulties uh, it, it's hard to explain without like keep repeating myself we are incredibly lucky incredibly lucky to have Jay he comes with his his difficulties don't we all but if this is the worst we've got fuck I'm so lucky I'm so lucky and when you hear me talk to more parents coming up and when you've heard me talk to other parents um, on the podcast where, you know, being a parent is fucking hard and actually being that kid is fucking hard. I do know how lucky we are. I love my son more than life itself. And he, he knows that, which I'm eternally grateful for. I wouldn't swap him. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> he knows I wouldn't. But I haven't said all this as a bragging right. You don't know how hard I've had it. Or as a, you know, you can't have been through a hard time until you've been what I've been through. No, nothing like that. That's not the point of the podcast. I hope by sharing some of my experiences that we can get the conversations going that we can stop the taboo around the conversations that are difficult around the embarrassment around the shame around the guilt around the inadequacies around the hiding emotions because we all have those and it's so important, so important to be able to express those. And like I said, if you've taken maybe some of the tips, brief few things that I've, I've thrown in there and, you know, they're useful to you or they're useful to somebody that you can support that's gone through, is going through, will go through these kind of situations, then I hope that's helped. And this is open to all people. 
these situations don't just happen to mums. These situations happen to dads and grandparents and siblings and aunts and uncles. They impact all of us. And we need to make sure collectively that we're all talking. Um, I had somebody when I lost Anna, who I worked with, who came up to me, older lady, and took me aside and she said, oh, I just wanted to tell you I'm so sorry. I said, oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And she said, but I just, I had to tell you, I, I lost a baby years ago. I've never told anyone. And I was like, what? And I just wanted to cry for her. You know, she didn't tell me to get my sympathy. She didn't tell me to be absolved. She didn't, she just, I don't know. She just needed to say that she knew. And I appreciated that so much. But I felt for her that she'd never been able to tell anyone. I had a lady come up to me in the village shop a couple of weeks ago who had heard just something I'd mentioned in, in one of these podcasts. Lovely lady. And again, she said to me, she's so cute. She said, just stand in. As you do, in the queue. She turned around and she went, love your podcast, by the way. I said, oh, thanks, love. Appreciate that. That's cute. She said, um, I had a stillbirth too, you know. And I went, oh, did you? She just went, yeah. Oh, a long time ago. I said, but it doesn't go away though, does it? She went, no, well, I'm done with all that now though. I said, are you? I said, I'm always here if you need to talk. No, 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 I'm 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 done with that. I said, Well, you know where I am, don't you? She said, Well, I wish I'd have had somebody that I could talk to like you talk about it back in those days. I said, Well, I'm always here if you want to talk. But this again kind of perpetuates my need to get everyone talking and just normalizing, just making these things that we all go through good and bad make them acceptable make them inclusive they're not just happening to one person they're happening to all of us and sadly you know the statistic in 2007 I don't know what it is now I hold my hands up but in 2007 one in four people will experience a stillbirth a child who is not alive at birth I've had friends that have had you know a week before full term where they've been stillborn there are complications at birth there are complications after birth this is the kind of stuff that people don't want to talk about because it hurts because it's awkward because it's uncomfortable because they don't know how to deal with it and this is what made me want to get into helping people and getting people to discuss how they feel because it festers and as I said you know an identity of grief is not an identity anymore you stop living you're living in the past you're living from pain and hurt and your loved one would never want you to be like that, whether you got to know them or not. They would still have that love for you where they want you to be happy and be free. 
not forgotten, still loved, but happy and free. I think I've covered everything that I was going to cover. I wrote some notes because there was a lot. <laughs> and if you're still here, I can only thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you will reach out. And I understand that this is, these are not topics that people readily want to expose themselves to or be vulnerable with. But if you would like to reach out and discuss these things, not necessarily in the podcast, I'm a coach, I'm here for it too. That's what I'm here for. Just give me a shout. But for today, I will say thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And take care of yourself. Thank you.